Hello, hello. Welcome back to Retrieving Sanity with your host, Keegan. Now, I have a question to propose. Did the substance abuse come before the mental illness, or did the mental illness cause the substance abuse? Now, everyone has a different theory on it, and they all have a little bit of credence, if you will. And I say this because it's both, or it can be both. Now, it's not a semi-directional avenue of which if you have a mental illness, you will develop a substance abuse disorder, and the inverse is true. Just because you abuse a substance does not mean you will obtain a mental illness. And yes, it is hard to differentiate which one came first sometimes, but that's why we kind of have a little bit of checks and balances, if you will. Now, Substance abuse comes in many forms. It can be from alcohol to crack cocaine, meth, so on and so forth, anything and everything. And mental illness can also be just as broad, if not more. So with the mental illness, it's harder to pinpoint exactly where it started. It's a lot. Was it genes? Was it a concussion whenever you were young? And just... Like I said, it could be many different factors, and therefore it's really hard to pinpoint. Now, substance abuse is a little bit easier on that end, and it's usually, when did you start to use, and you couldn't stop using? That's the tall tale sign of a substance abuse. You lost your choice to use or to not use. In mental illness, you don't really get a chance of saying, yes, I'll take Uh, schizophrenia before bipolar. No, it's not like that. And sadly, it's what a lot of people think someone with a mental illness actually does. A lot of people say that if you're depressed, you just need to act happy. Just smile, put on a fake face, and you'll be okay. If you want to feel okay, you gotta act okay. And you know what? That doesn't really help. The problem with that is that Well, if you're ingenuine to yourself, you're doing yourself a disservice. This disservice comes because, well, if you're not authentic with yourself, you can't do anything productive. You can't do any growing. You can't be the best you. Now, with a substance abuse disorder, it's kind of similar, but the thing is, people will put on a facade, if you will, to sit there and make it seem like they're okay. And by this, a lot of people will sit there and spend ludicrous amounts of money on just portraying that they don't have anything wrong. And this can go from your car to your wardrobe, uh, hairdos every week, uh, manicures, pedicures, whatever, getting massages. (laughs) It's kind of funny because a lot of people will spend so much money on hiding it, and it just doesn't really work. But with that being said, mental illness and substance abuse can go hand in hand. One does not cause the other, and the other does not cause the first. And really, like I said, it's kind of up in the air for how it all starts. So if we want to take a look at mental illness, one of the first things we have to think about is the genes. We have to look at the family history 
of mental health and maybe along the line we can say oh back in 18 something so and so from your family was diagnosed a lunatic and sent to the asylum well that doesn't necessarily mean that that is going to translate to a future generation but at the same time a lot of uh, substance abuse can also be gene related to an extent now again with these we have to dig and dig to find out what the cause was a mental illness can come about from a brain malfunction or rather not being structured quite right and a substance abuse can start the same way it can just be a miscalculation if you will now i do want to go over a few of the statistics that kind of back up that one can cause the other so if we're looking at substance abuse and mental illness they're closely intertwined according to the national survey on drug use and health in 2020 45.6% of adults with any mental illness had used illicit drugs in the past year compared to the 15 0.7% of adults without a mental illness. So that's almost pretty much double. So yeah, I mean, it's pretty prevalent that if you have a mental illness, you might use some substance of sorts for self-medication. Now, additionally, the relationship of substance abuse and mental illness is complex. Like I said, it's bi-directional. One can cause the other and vice versa, but it does not mean if you have one, the other will soon appear. It's just a little bit more likely that it can. So whenever I say this, these are some of the stats, if you will. People with mental health disorders are twice as likely to have a substance abuse disorder than people that don't have one. So, if you have some mental illness, you're already dealt a stack of cards that's really going to, well, not be in your favor, for lack of a better word. And then approximately half of all people with schizophrenia also have a substance use disorder. So, right there, if you have schizophrenia, you might end up using drugs, but... <laughs> the inverse is true, too. If you use drugs, you could develop schizophrenia. And if you know anything about tweakers or just, like, people off of their rockers because of drugs, it's easy to really see why. But let's look at bipolar disorder. So keep in mind, this is one of my mental uh, <laughs> hurdles, if you will. People with bipolar Polar disorder are six times more likely to have a substance use disorder than the general population. So right there, I'm already at twice as likely, okay? And then we hop over to bipolar, and now I'm six times as likely to develop some kind of disorder using substances for self-medication. Now, 
here's one that a lot of people can really understand and get behind because this is one of the more common mental health issues, especially in today's world. So people with depression are twice as likely to have a substance use disorder than the rest of the population. So if you're feeling blue or you just got laid off from your job or that one girl or guy just broke up with you to go halfway across the state to do something, I don't know, anything that can make you depressed. One thing that people will do almost time in and time out is seek some sort of relief, some sort of medication, and a lot of it comes well from within. A lot of people don't really sit there and go, oh, I'm depressed, I should go to the therapist or something. Now there are those that do that, and to them, that's off. Great, that's good. But for the rest of us, therapy is expensive. So therefore, we just kike to throw it in this five-gallon bucket and toss it in the closet and just never look at it again. Now, here's another one. People with anxiety are three times as likely to have a substance use disorder. And so that's another one of mine. So I do have a mental illness, so that's twice. Bipolar, six times. And then anxiety, three times. I was dealt a bad hand. It's almost inevitable that I was going to use. I was going to seek some sort of self-medication and therefore make myself feel normal. And really, normal is a relative term that none of us really know all too well because, well, if you're like me, you're weird. And that's okay. All the interesting people in life are indeed weird. Now, again, with this depression, I think more people can relate to it, but the thing is, a lot of people that are going through a rough time, as the breakup situation or getting laid off from your job, a lot of that is temporary. Now, I know whenever I say it's temporary, a lot of the time it does not feel like it's temporary, and that's okay, because Whenever you're going through some stuff, it feels like it will never end. And sometimes it comes about a lot faster than you thought it would be resolved, and other times it may drag on. But the thing with depression is that they have something in the DSM-5 that gives the criteria for what depression in a clinical standpoint looks like. And it's just one of those things that if you are depressed for a long period of time and there's not really a trigger for you feeling like that, then you probably have depression. And of course, you have mild to severe and deep. And so with that mental disorder, there's a lot of different things that go into play that could cause it and or prolong it and just be really hard to shake off. Sometimes you cannot run fast enough to get away from that little storm cloud that likes to sit there and follow you. Now, I want you to remember that those statistics are averages. The actual risk is individualized, and that's the case, is that it's so individualized with anything and everything that goes into someone's life 
that it's hard to say that that is going to happen. In fact, it's unfair to sit there and say, well, Tommy suffers from this and this mental disorder, so he's definitely going to pick up crack. It just doesn't work that way. But a lot of us, well, I wouldn't say us, a lot of the general population seems to think that that is the case. One causes the other and tit for tat, but as we're learning here, that's not necessarily the case. And again, it's kind of unfair. Like, I'm pretty sure if someone were to tell you what you're going to end up doing just because of a little stupid factor, you're probably going to sit there and tell them to, you know, go kick rocks. So, there are roundabouts in, well, treating any substance abuse or mental illness. And the fact is, not a lot of people actually go and seek the help that they need. And this comes from many different factors as well. Maybe someone doesn't have the money to go and see a therapist or psychiatrist or a general physician. And then a lot of people also don't really have the time to do that nowadays because 8 to 5, Monday through Friday, your soul belongs to this company. Now, trust me, I know a lot of us don't like doing that. And that's why I don't have an office job. Like, don't get me wrong, I'm a copier technician by day. So I'm in a lot of different offices, but I'm still able to, well, see the sun, if you will. Now, we have to keep in mind that even though a lot of us don't seek the help, it's not always something professional that we need. Yes, it definitely helps to talk to someone that is professionally qualified to handle certain situations or illnesses or disorders, but a lot of people, a lot, including myself, having a strong support system is absolutely crucial. And it's crucial because, well, you have people to support you. Now, that's not to say that this person is going to sit there and do everything for you. And it's kind of unfair to think that, too, because they still have their life to do whatever it is they need to do. So we have to be willing to accept support whenever it's offered. And then we also have to be willing to ask for it whenever we need help. And trust me, I'm a guy and all the other guys that are listening, uh, you know, a lot of the time we got it. I know how to get to uh, Sam's from here. Um, but I'll just, I'll drive around for like an hour just taking the scenic route. You know, I'm a guy, so I know everywhere I'm going. So we have to be willing to accept help. But again, if we don't know that there's a problem, there's nothing we can do. And so it's actually pretty crucial that we sit there and know at least a little bit of ourselves or the things that we are struggling with so that whenever we reach out, we can be a little bit clear and concise. Like, hey, well, this happened so long ago and I'm still having trouble getting over it or I tried this substance and now it's just stuck in my head to go get more and blah, 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 blah. So if you can get an understanding of yourself and what needs to be 
done, then a lot of people are willing to help. Again, I am a big believer that people are innately good. We are born good, we are innocent and young, and then as we grow up, the world corrupts. And some people think it's not the case, and to them I say go kick rocks, because I think it's true. No, not really. You're entitled to your opinion and beliefs and respects, and as am I, but doesn't mean we have to like them, right? And that's where a lot of us go wrong. So, thing is that I'm going to show you common courtesy no matter where you're at, unless you're a pedophile, in which case, no, you go sit in jail forever. And I want to say right here that even though someone has a mental illness or substance abuse disorder does not make that person bad. Because, again, we're, in my opinion, innocent and willing to help and just be a good person. But these slightly internal and external factors such as mental disorders and substance abuse will make someone act in ways that they may not do if they were in their right headspace. And that's fair, right? Whenever you're hangry, you sit there and you find yourself being a little bit more uh, snippy, if you will. And because of this snippiness, you upset a few people. And then after you had your lunch, you come back and you're feeling nice and good and full, ready for a nap, and then you're wondering why Bob, Steve, Clara, and Zoe are all mad at you because you said something to them before you left the office, and you're like, well, I just got done with a good lunch. I don't know what's wrong with you, and it's because you were hangry, so you said something that wasn't very nice to a few people, not just one. And that's kind of the thing with a mental disorder. It's something that we don't always really have a rein on. And again, for some people, it's been so prevalent in their lives ever since they were young that they don't know what normal is supposed to be like. And in fact, that's how a lot of mental illnesses go and why the self-medication comes around and turns into substance abuse. For myself, I my brain is always on overdrive and by overdrive it goes from one destination to the next no problem and at the same time I just can't get it to shut up about certain things so I turned to alcohol because it made me feel good it made me feel a little bit dumber and a little bit more social so that way I could actually sit there and go talk to people and do this and that the problem is, that wasn't solving anything, and eventually it turned into such a chaotic nightmare that uh, I couldn't do it anymore. And so, you'll have to check back in for more of the story, or, um, yeah, just go to retrievingsanity.podbean.com, and you'll catch a lot of earlier experiences and episodes. But, I digress. We want to look at something that happens to the brain. Now, this can be long-term and short-term, and this is actually coming from substance abuse itself. 
The specific effects of substance abuse on the brain vary depending on the type of substance being abused, the amount and the frequency of it, as well as someone's biology and genetics. So let's keep that in mind real quick. Genetics. And that's something we're not at any kind of say-so. Like, we do not get a choice in the hand that we're dealt whenever it comes to genes. Now, a lot of us wish that we were. Some of us that have a mental disorder would love to feel normal for a day without having to take some kind of medication or substance or anything like that. And people also would like to be taller, shorter, skinnier, so on and so forth. But guess what? We got the genes that we're dealt with, and we've just got to learn how to incorporate ourselves into it and absorb that as part of our identity so that we can actually go on and be a little bit happier because nothing is going to be 100% satisfactory to basically anyone and everyone because, you know, we're human. We want everything this way, right, and every single second, as soon as I say so, it better be, right? So, again, with mental illness and substance abuse, it varies from person to person about how much it affects their lives, how much it affects their thinking, their morals, so on and so forth. So we have to sit there and look at the whole spectrum as best as we can. And the thing with that, we have to also be able to take a close look at some of the finer details. However, if we sit there and we're staring too long at the finer details, we're never going to really pull back and see the whole image. And just because we're working on one aspect of someone's mental health or substance abuse does not mean that is going to affect and fix anything else. If we're stuck on one little bit, we're not going to make, well, much progress, to be honest. Because if we can't see how things are actually going to be affecting something else, we're going to sit there and just kind of assume that, oh, well... You had obsessive compulsive disorder, and now we got your room a little messed up, the bed's not made, so on and so forth, so everything else in your life is just fine. You don't have to wash your car inside and out three times a day. You don't have to sit there and have your Clorox wipes and just wipe down the keyboard every time you touch it at work. So that that's kind of what I mean. Fixing or trying to fix one aspect does not affect the entirety of it and that's the thing remember whenever we're going through something we think it's never going to end and with it never ending we don't actually really see the end or the point of getting help again because if we don't see or at least try to take a look at everything we're never really going to understand anyways and that's just how it goes. So some of the short-term effects that can come about from substance abuse is an increased dopamine level. Now, dopamine is the neurotransmitter uh, that plays a huge role in rewards and motivation. So using a substance can actually cause a surge in dopamine. Now, 
the thing with dopamine, again, it's kind of like a reward that, oh, you went and did this, so here's a little bit of dopamine. Feel good. And this came about from survival. Whenever we'd come across something that was sweet, sugar is actually pretty important in our physiological makeup. So if we found some berries that were nice and sweet and didn't kill us, our brain went, ooh, that's good. We need more of that. And so that's whenever you start going in the woods and looking for this little berry bush, and then you find it and you feel real nice and giddy. You pick as many as you can, you bring them back to the village, and then uh, so-and-so makes like tarts or pies. Uh, so it's one of those, you get a little bit of dopamine from it and your brain goes this is good let's do it more and then we have something that all of us face from time to time and it's not directly tied to substance abuse and that is impaired judgment now I don't know about you but there's been a few times in my life that I can sit there and say yeah that wasn't the smartest thing to do and well, sometimes that decision plays a very long-term effect or very short-term effect. And, well, some people never really learn a lesson. And so that's kind of what happens with substance abuse. Remember, it's starting off as usually self-medication. And so, therefore, we do things that we try to make better but there's also times where we're like, oh, I shouldn't have done it. And then you go and do it again because more dopamine. So it's kind of a double-edged sword right there. And that's the problem with substance abuse is that your dopamine levels get increased. And therefore, your brain starts to go, that equals survival. You lose a choice after a certain point from using substances a little bit too much. Now, another one of these effects is memory problems. And if you're like me, I've got a weird memory. Sometimes short-term stuff will just not get processed for whatever reason. And then there's times where it's like, oh, I can remember that from like four years old. And it's like, why? <laughs> but I can't remember what I had for lunch yesterday. And this happened before all the substance, so take it with a grain of salt, if you will. But I've also had a lot of concussions, so there's also that. I'm not the most safest or lucky individual, but the thing is, I'm willing to at least try and get better. Now, with this memory problem, we actually are dealing with the hippocampus itself, and it's the primary part for memory formation. And so if we have a problem with our memory, well, we're going to have a hard time learning. So we can also lose important information. Memory is a lot like a muscle. You don't use it, you lose it. Because <laughs> in my experience, what happens is I know this little weird tidbit of information from Wikipedia years ago and now I'm learning something about, say, my job or career, and it just pushes memory that's less used 
and makes way for the new information. And that's how a lot of memory works for a lot of people is that <laughs> you have it, you use it, and then you don't use it enough. Your brain kind of just goes into the recycle bin with that. And then every now and then you can dig it back out. But a lot of the times it just goes. So with that, again, memory problems can cause someone. And this is actually kind of in uh, the Alcoholics Anonymous book. They say within a week to two weeks or a month, someone can forget how bad the problem actually was for that individual. This is why a lot of people with a substance abuse disorder can sit there and they can seem like they're doing great for a couple of days, a week or two, and maybe a whole month. And then next thing you know, they're right back to where they started. And you're like, wow, this is pretty stupid of you. And the thing is, that person may understand it too, and they may have known, like, oh, this is probably a bad decision. But the thing is, is that the brain is fantastic at tricking itself. What happens is your brain goes, ah, yeah, that, that wasn't that bad. We can do it again, just in moderation. And if you have any experience with substance abuse, moderation does not work. Um, as someone once put it, he would go to the trap house and only go with like $20 or something, and the rest of it he'd keep in his shoe so he wouldn't grab it and use it to get more of that substance. And then, of course, that didn't really work. But it's kind of a funny little thing is that our moderation levels kind of go kaput, and that's because we forget how bad the problem actually was and then not only that we have the dopamine surge from that substance so our brain likes to go uh okay that was then this is now this is different so let's do it again and then you do it and then you find yourself up in the same situation as you were before now the thing with long-term effects and substance abuse is that they will make a lot of changes to the brain so let's look at three of them real quick i'm just going to read off some of the description and we'll go from there so one of the long-term effects from substance abuse is an altered brain structure and so changes in the structure of the brain so this includes shrinking of the prefrontal cortex and hippocampus and they can lead to long-term problems with judgment, decision-making, memory, and learning. So this comes from the short-term effects. Remember, the first one is dopamine. Then we have impaired judgment, and then we have memory loss. So the prefrontal cortex is what makes our inhibitions. It is the part of our brain that goes, oh, yeah, that's probably a bad idea. And most substances actually hinder that part of the brain. So therefore, yeah, you know, you're, you forgot that it was even sort of bad. It's just your brain goes dopamine, I need. So then with that, the hippocampus, again, is part of the memory formation. So those two coupled together really makes your brain go, 
Oh, yeah, I forgot that that happened last time I drank or used this, and it was like three days ago, and, you know, again, like I said, mental illness can stem from substance abuse because of this, and the thing is, it's a long-lasting side effect, and there's not a whole lot that we can do about it, but we can still manage it in a certain point and way, but again, that's only if we acknowledge it and are willing to get help for it. Now, reduced dopamine sensitivity is another one of the long-term effects, and this one is really important because remember that dopamine tells you this is good, this is nice, I like it, this is pretty important for survival. So, Whenever your dopamine sensitivity is reduced, it will de <laughs> what it is, the number of dopamine receptors in the brain are, again, reduced. And it makes it difficult for a person to experience pleasure from everyday activities and can increase the risk of addiction. So, whenever we're sitting there and we're just flooding our brain with nothing but good dopamine, from substance, we sit there and we essentially drown some of those receptors and they just kind of wither away. And so with them being withered away, your brain is looking to get more dopamine in because now some of the receptors are dead or long gone. You have to stimulate the only receptors you have left and just constantly keep it fed because you have less. So to feel the same, you have to just do more. And that's how a tolerance for certain substances come about and why it's difficult to kick them. Because they don't... Someone cannot find the joy in everyday activities. So if you like to go run or meditate, uh, work out, work on your car or suntan, anything, whenever you fall into substance abuse, for long enough of a time, you will forget how good these other activities actually made you feel. Now, it's not that this is going to be gone forever and you're just going to live a loom and gloom life. And that's what a lot of people think whenever they're deep in their addiction. They're going to say, well, I don't get any joy from this and I used to. Well, you killed a little part of your brain that made that enjoyable. So what happens is a lot of people will associate sobriety with boring lives, with just being a blank slate or a robot or something. But the thing with actively working a program of recovery, you actually will sit there and you increase the dopamine receptors in your brain, but this is caused mostly by exercise, uh, which helps rebuild a lot of different brain uh, functions and structure. And because of that, your neurotransmitters for dopamine will kind of come back. And again, it's a long and arduous process, but whenever you're working an active program of recovery, recovery is really the act of healing from addiction. So for some people, it's a lifetime event. For others, I don't know.
But the thing is, you can find a joy and happiness and fun in sobriety. The thing is, you just have to stick with it for a little bit. The brain is actually really, really good at, well, monitoring itself and rebuilding itself, oddly enough. Now, one of the other long-term effects brings this full circle. The increased risk of mental health disorders. So, using a substance is just going to help increase the risk of developing one. And this can be anxiety, depression, and psychosis. Now, anxiety, that sucks. I can tell you that right now, being sober. And, I mean, I've had this for years. So, it, you just kind of learn to live with it. But you also learn how to cope and deal with it as you're working a program of recovery. And also, for anyone that's kind of curious, you do not have to be an addict or anything like that to practice some of the things that are in a program of recovery. I say this because a lot of people think that, well, doing this or therapy or doing personal inventories and stuff like that is only for the addicts. Well, it's not. The thing is that all those tools that someone in recovery learns can be used by your everyday John Doe, like, he can use it, and he'll actually get something out of it, because it's not to sit there and say, well, like, I'm done with that, or I need to fill a void, it, it kind of is, but the thing is, it's a lot of self-introspection, it's a lot of learning from yourself, and that's the thing, is that a lot of us don't take a look on the inside enough to actually make much of a difference. Now, I'm not saying that if you don't do these things, you're not going to work. The thing is, like I said many times before, is that a person's recovery is highly individualized and is structured for them by them. What works for some may not work for others, and vice versa. So... You just have to sit there and kind of see what works. And the thing is, it's a lot like taking antidepressants or something. Just because you take it for a few days doesn't mean that it's going to take effect and actually do anything. The hard part about recovery and learning to get over mental illnesses, and it's not to say that you quote-unquote get over it, I'm just using it as a term for simplification. It's not that it gets you through it or whatever, and from a short standpoint, you have to stick with it for a little bit. And that's the thing, is that we're dealing with our physiological makeup, especially in our brain. And while it can be quick to go, it can take a little while to build it back up, as with pretty much everything. So, just because something doesn't work right away, don't discredit it, no nothing. It kind of goes with that, you want to do a new hobby or have a new interest, and like, go make clay pottery, for example. If you go and you just can't seem to get the spinning wheel right, and you just give up because you're not good at it, well, then you're never going to be good at it. And then you'll find yourself cheating yourself a lot from things that could be 
very well fun and well productive and just all in all fun to do like i said fun so whenever we also look at a few other things our brain is just again it is really really good at communicating with itself but it's also really really good at misinterpreting itself or sending the wrong message and it may send the right message but the form of delivery is a little bit different so whenever we look at addictive drugs so like cocaine alcohol so on and so forth it causes an abnormally large release of dopamine so this is what causes the euphoria or the high and because remember the dopamine is the feel good that's where our brains want to go it just is something to latch on to because it's fast acting and instant gratification is what humans are all about so the brain adapts well to a lot of different things and recovery is the same way but like i said you have to stick through it and i know this sounds very reminiscent to what i just said a little bit ago but it's very important because if you give up shortly into it you'll never reap any of the benefits so let's look at a few of the things uh a few of the physiological uh, causes for a mental illness so of course we have genes and those tell you your mom or dad or both suffer from depression and anxiety it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have it but you just have a higher in uh, you have a much larger increase for developing it now neurotransmitters if you don't know are the thing in our brain that literally will talk to other parts of our brain so these actually regulate mood emotions cognitive functions and balances of these will actually cause many different of the mental illnesses low levels of serotonin are associated with depression while excessive dopamine is linked to schizophrenia so i don't know if you remember but like i was saying people with schizophrenia about half of them have some kind of substance abuse disorder and that's part of the reason why an excessive dump of dopamine in the brain for long enough periods of time can cause schizophrenia because those two are highly interlinked and again just because you know someone that uses or is schizophrenic does not mean they're on both teams for lack of a better term now our hormones are huge a lot of people don't really understand how big of a role that hormones actually play hormones are essentially the little messengers in your body you actually have hormones that tell you whenever you're hungry you have hormones or pheromones that will be able to tell you if a partner is genetically uh like viable if you will so like if someone smells good to you and it's not their cologne or perfume it's your body kind of going like ah, healthy baby so uh, we'll maybe talk about that but the thing is with hormones they 
are highly critical for stress response, uh, metabolism, and growth. So disruptions in the cortisol levels, uh, cortisol is the hormone related for stress, it's highly linked to anxiety disorders and depression. So whenever someone has a high level of cortisol, it can actually make that person on edge, much like myself. So it doesn't matter what it is, when it is, or anything like that. My body has such a huge imbalance of cortisol that if I don't regulate it by eating right, meditating, or exercising, every little thing can get me going off in the wrong direction. And then remember that big map I was telling you about? I'll sit there and look at a little bitty thing that if I look at the big picture, it's not even there. It's only there because I'm looking at it. And a lot of us like to do that with ourselves for what reason? I don't really know. We just kind of do. Humans are weird. I'm weird. You're probably weird too. And if you are, congratulations. Again, weird people are the best people. But let's see. If we're dealing with other uh, singling molecules... They are other aspects of the brain that affect a mental illness. So alterations in the brain can cause many, many different things. And the thing is, again, it's not a one pill fix all things. It's not one thing is fixed by a multitude of things. One, actually, that's kind of the best way to go about treating a mental illness and a substance disorder. It's to sit there and attack it on all sides because it's your enemy, essentially, and it's you. So you have to learn the best way to fight you to fight you, but nega you, like you with that weird little mustache. That's the guy you're trying to take out. But it's really hard to do this because a lot of us are taught that as we go through life, if we have one problem, there's one solution. And if you're like me, I was in the trades. I was an electrician for several years. And the thing is, depending on the journeyman I was with, highly dictated which method of skinning a cat I was going to use. If you don't know that phrase or saying it, there's many... Or there's more than one way to skin a dead cat. So there you go. For instance, one journeyman might tell me that, ooh, I have to do this conduit run like this or whatever and use the bender a certain way. And then if I try that same thing with another journeyman, he'd yell at me because he said, no, just go through the wall. So it's one of those things that you have to learn different routes for getting to that same end point and it's hard to do and again it also takes time because a lot of it is trial and error that's one reason why people will give up on leading a life of recovery or leading some kind of productive being of themselves is because they didn't get it right the first time they didn't do well the first time. And to not keep going, 
again, it does nothing but a disservice to the individual. And it's real easy to stop because it's one of those is an action, but it is a passive action. So therefore, not a lot of energy is expended to get a possibly desired result. So we have to really buckle down and try our best at healing ourselves. And again, it's not easy. Again, I'm not going to lie or sugarcoat it. Life sucks. But the thing is, we have to learn how to make it not suck. Now, for some people, they're just innately happy, like is ha like creepy happy. And those kind of people are probably the ones deepest in lying to themselves, essentially. But it's kind of like whenever you have someone with depression, they very well might be the happiest and most positive person you know. And it's kind of an inverse thing. That person understands what it's like to be feeling down and depressed, sad, and just ready to give up on everything. And they know how bad it sucks. So, therefore, they do everything in their power to help someone else. To help those that are not them. To help those other people better. Not just better, but enjoy themselves. This person's probably going to do a lot of favors without anything in return. Will lend you money, but won't accept it back from you. And so on and so forth. It is one of those things that sometimes the person that is acting a certain way is probably the person that's hurting the most. And they need help. And again, this goes back to we have to be willing to accept help. We have to be willing to admit that there's something wrong. And even though it takes a little bit of time, it takes a lot of energy and trial and error... It's doable. It is very doable, very realistically. But whenever we don't acknowledge certain things, those things end up controlling us. So if we have a substance abuse disorder, then we have to find a workaround to it. But remember, if you are addicted to drugs or alcohol, you lost your choice. And again, addiction is really just the disease of choice. So we have to make that decision. We have to make a choice to break out of it. But the thing is, just because you stepped out of bounds doesn't mean you're necessarily out of the game. Now you have to step out of bounds, walk out of the stadium, get to your car, go to the airport, then fly you and your car back home and then from there, continue your trip to Saudi Arabia, where you will find a magic flying carpet to get up to the Arctic. Now, if that sounds a little weird, well, that's kind of how getting over a lot of this stuff is. It can seem silly. It can seem like it's not going to work. But the thing is, if we give up a little bit too early, we'll never actually know. And that's also not to say just keep doing the things that keep failing. Can and you can't. And with all these, it still goes back to it's up to the individual. And sometimes someone just doesn't ever want to give up. 
and that's admirable. I don't know about you, but someone that can get knocked down and then stand up and then keep going at it, yeah, that person has a lot of my respect, and <laughs> for good reason, too, because I admire that, because I wish I'd had that years and years ago. But the thing is, we have to learn how to handle ourselves. We have to learn how to ask for help. And if we just turn a blind eye to it, no matter what we do, then we're actually letting it win. We're not actually winning anything. Well, okay, we are winning something, and it's called losing, right? <laughs> I don't know. I'm sorry. But the thing is, we can't single someone out and blame them for any of the things that they really do whenever it comes to changes in alterations in brain structure, genes, and just addiction. We can sit there and we can be mad all we want, but if we're not willing to at least help or try to help, then you don't really have a lot of say-so. And again, this is totally individualized. It can be super relevant to some people and super irrelevant to a whole bunch of other people. So we have to sit there and know that not everything that someone does was entirely their choice. Maybe it's their choice, but it was the last option that they had. And sometimes people just won't try again because they're met with ridicule. They're met with disbelief that something is wrong. They're met with disbelief that they have something that they need help with, but because it's not physically visible, it's all in the head. So therefore, they're just making it up. And I'm here to tell you that that is by large and far the worst thing you can do to someone is to turn them down whenever they're asking for help. Now, I'm also not saying enable someone, but love someone, because love will actually fix or start the healing process for many things. So if you have the capacity to be honest and open and love someone, no matter what they're going through, do it. It might be a little bit of an energy expenditure or a little bit of a time consumer, but the thing is, maybe you're the one person that'll actually give this other person a second chance or a chance to begin with. Again, a lot of people not seek help because they started to and then they were just shot down. So they're like, why? And it's usually by the people that are closest to them. So, if you're listening to this, and you know some people that are having a hard time with either a mental disorder or a substance abuse disorder, then just be there for them. Be willing to listen, but at the same time, you don't have to tell them or give them any advice. A lot of people actually just want to be heard and understood. So if you have some ears, if you can do sign language, anything like that, then hear someone out. Let their story touch you. Let their lessons of life be incorporated in some story of yours in the future. So 
after all of this, I'm here to say that each and every one of you are amazing, and you're loved, and yeah, you are pretty funny, so don't let Todd over at the water cooler tell you otherwise. Todd can, well, go sit in his cubicle and then play with his Batman Lego or something. I don't, let, let Todd be Todd. You do you. And again, just enjoy yourself. Enjoy life as best as you can because who knows? Maybe something great will come out of it. So here is the end of the episode. Don't forget to check back in next Friday at 7 o'clock. And until I see you again, have a great and wonderful weekend and just a fantastic month. I'll see you all next week. Again, if you or someone you know is struggling with substance abuse, give this number a call. 1-800-662-4357. And if you or a loved one is struggling with suicidal thoughts and tendencies, give this number a call. 988. Remember, you are loved.